Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual prizes, as well as discussions with book lovers from across the country. On this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Joanna Lilly. And here's Joanna to share a little bit about herself. Um, well, I live in Whitehorse, Yukon, in Canada. I'm not from here, as you can probably tell. I'm from the UK, actually from England, so moved about the south of England a lot. And I love writing about place, um, which maybe kind of comes up in the, the readings I selected. I have a whole poetry book kind of on the theme of place, which is called If There Were Roads. And I'm really conscious um, of my Englishness and the fact that I'm from a colonizing country. And I do want to acknowledge that I'm here in Whitehorse um, where there are 14 First Nations. And I in particular live on the traditional territories of two First Nations, which is Tahan uh, Quachin Council and the Kwanindan First Nation. And I moved here 15 years ago and my husband and I had both traveled in Canada uh, before we met and had that in common, this sort of dream to live here. And after many years of paperwork and being in limbo and all those things, uh, we finally moved here and we decided to come straight to the north. We had this kind of compulsion, particularly me, um, to come north. And we both really love snow and just wanted to experience these amazing winters that we have that are changing, of course, with the climate crisis. We can, we even in 15 years, we, we feel we can, yeah, there have been shifts even since we've come here. I asked Joanna if she could be the character from any novel, who she would be and why. And even though she couldn't settle on one character, she did pick an author whose character she loves. Here's Joanna's answer. I really love Maggie O'Farrell's novels. She's a, a Irish uh, author lives in Edinburgh in Scotland so I just I think perhaps almost any of her probably her female characters because they seem to experience life so intensely and poetically um, and they often have things that they have to deal with which any good character in a book obviously should have and there's this kind of theme of perhaps secrets and miscommunication and what you communicate and what you don't and I'm tr- I don't know that I could pick one character um, but I do yeah I do love the way she creates characters and makes you kind of feel um, augmented somehow when you when you read her books yeah Joanna Lilly is a writer living in Whitehorse Yukon in 2021 she was awarded the Borealis Prize the Commissioner of Yukon Award for Literary Contribution Joanna has written poetry, including her latest collection, Endlings, and fiction, such as her novel, Worry Stones. She's also an active volunteer in the literary and word arts community in Yukon, including helping to form Yukon Words, which supports word arts in the territory. Before Joanna and I jumped into a discussion about her writing, she read a little bit from her work. Here's Joanna. So I'd like to read a poem from my collection of poetry all about extinct species, which is called Endings. And the poem I'd like to read, it's called Witness, and it's inspired by the Irish elk, which is one of the species I write about in the book. 
Um, and the Irish elk was around around uh, 11,000 years ago, something like that. And it was a massive, massive creature. Um, and the antlers were about three and a half meters wide, which is just quite phenomenal. And you can, you can, if you're lucky, you can go to a natural history museum and they'll have the skeletons of, I think in Toronto, you can see the Irish elk. It's quite amazing. So this poem is inspired by that creature and my sort of personal encounters with elk or deer-like creatures around and about. So this is called Witness. Seven of us saw six caribou on the tours. We stood and stared, holding the dogs. The caribou stared at us. We walked on, feeling blessed. In a sodden hollow between two foothills, below a fairy castle summit, they found the skeletons of a hundred Irish elk, misnamed, not Irish, they were African-Siberian, not even elk, but antecedents of the fallow deer. At autumn sunrise, we drove along golden lanes to Shehalian. We spotted a running deer and travelled on, feeling blessed. If I'd stood at that turfy Irish bog and pulled out bones, I wouldn't tie them to my car or nail them to a gate. I would lay them on wet grass, a flame of antlers, bow of neck, a scaffold of legs, a hull of ribs. Everyone could come to see. On a moonless night, my high beam silhouetted a stationary stag. I drove slowly on to Inverness, feeling blessed. Next, I'd like to read a little bit from my novel. It's called Worry Stones. I'm going to read the beginning of chapter eight, and it's about Jenny and her family, and they are just moving all the way from the south of England to Scotland. And there's Jenny and her two sisters in the car, and the two sisters are not happy at all about this move. And it's 1988, just for a bit of context. They drive all the way to Scotland, 400 miles in one day. Their mother drives most of it, apart from when she turns into a service station and says to their father, you'll go, I'm falling asleep. I don't want to kill everyone. The second service station they stop at, where her mother takes over the driving again, is small, really just a cafe. There's a pond by the car park with neat and tidy ducks on it. Scotland feels very close now. Jenny's father has written out the route in large letters on the back of an envelope and closed the ashtray lid on it so it will stay there for the whole journey. Jenny is the backup navigator and holds the map on her knees the entire way. Even without seeing it on the map, she would have been able to tell the Scottish border is close by the way the grass is paler and longer, the hills are lumpier and the sheep are more yellow. Sitting on Jenny's left and right, Maddie and Sophie listen to music on their Sony walk persons, as Sophie calls them, because the tinny noises are on both sides and somehow balanced like stereo speakers. It isn't as annoying as Jenny thought it was going to be. Anyway, she's reading the best book she's ever read, resting on top of the Atlas, all the day long by Howard Spring. She'd found it in a second-hand bookshop in North Street in Brighton, and will keep it forever. She's hoping Peebles has a second-hand bookshop, a library, 
and an art gallery. Her father, in the front passenger seat, mostly sleeps, even in the stop and start traffic jams, and even though her mother has the radio on, tuned as always to Radio 4. Jenny likes being in the middle of them all, knowing exactly where each of them is. Peebles is a street, a bridge, a church tower, a river. In Brighton, you have to go to the hills. In Peebles, the hills come to you. You can probably see the hills and the woods from wherever you stand. You can from inside the car anyway. Jenny watches the side of her mother's face from the back seat. She isn't quite smiling, but there's something relaxed about her cheek, her mouth, even after such a long drive. It's so incredibly green, Maddie says. Jenny asks her what type of green it is, and Maddie tells her it's Prussian green. Their father has been awake ever since they crossed the border into Scotland. He's given more detailed directions now. Bloody hell, says Sophie, when they take a left turn into a leafy lane with no road markings. She brushes off her headphones. Welcome to the sticks. Bicycles, says their father, matter-of-factly, if you can't cope with walking a mile, and the bus goes along the main road. The trees are tall and almost meet overhead. The sunlight on the lane is dappled as if they're in a boat on a canal. This is it, slow down, this is it. Their father sounds excited. The name of the house is carved into the stone wall by the gates, Willow Bray. Their mother indicates right, but instead of going through the gateposts, she breaks. What on earth are you doing? Their father looks up and down the lane. There's nothing coming. Savouring, says their mother, both hands on the steering wheel. You can't even see the house. I'm about to move into a house I've never seen except in photographs. It feels very, um, she pauses to identify the right word, decadent. I think the word you're looking for, mother, is insane, Sophie says. Their mother is right. You can't see even a single roof tile through the thick trees. The gravel driveway is curved, sealed by leaves. There are oaks and a copper beech like the one in the school field at Brighton, as well as lots of other trees Jenny doesn't know the names of. She soon will. You can't live in the country and not know the names of trees. Can we go? She says. Her mother laughs. The suspense. She rolls the car along the drive. One, two, three, four. Jenny counts the seconds until they can see the house. Nine seconds. A nine-second driveway. They've seen the photographs, of course, but the warmth of the yellowish stone bright in the sunlight is unexpected. Five windows on the first floor, four windows on the ground floor, each with 12 panes. A glimpse of basement windows through bushes. A red front door. There's a triangle above the front door and columns on either side with a crinkly pattern at the top. Jenny has never seen such a friendly looking house. Nobody's moving, nobody's saying anything. As soon as her mother stops the car, Jenny stretches across Maddie and pulls the handle to pop open the door. Ow, says Maddie, as Jenny wriggles across her sister's lap. Jenny slides out of the car, head first. Her palm is the first part of her to touch Scotland. And I will leave it there. Thank you very much. Well, the reason I get to uh, talk to you today is because, of course, you were the winner of the 2021 Borealis Prize. I'm wondering what your reaction was to hearing that you had won. 
Well, it was shock, to be honest, and, and deep surprise. I really um, didn't expect it. In fact, it was you who telephoned me, <laughs> uh, left a message for, for me to call you, and I, it didn't occur to me um, at all. So I was really quite shocked, actually, and I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know what to say. And I think we're a small community here um, in Yukon, and there are... And I know I've said this before, and I and I know I will keep saying it, but there are many people here who do amazing things. So um, this is a really new prize. Um, last year, Patty Flather and Leonard Linklater won um, as a pair, which was fabulous. Um, and then I was lucky enough to win this year. So I'm just, I'm, just, oh, you know, I, I already had my list of, of who I wanted to nominate. So this is this is my quest now, just to kind of work through all the wonderful thing, all the wonderful people who have done amazing things here. For the community yeah but i know i was honestly quite quite shocked and stunned and very humbled extremely humbled um yeah and it's just wonderful that the commissioner and the bc and yukon book prize has created this prize um because we we didn't have anything like that here before so i'm really grateful to to both of you for that yeah yeah yeah, I talked to the commissioner last week, actually, and, and we were talking about how unique the prize is because, of course, it has the the literary and writing component mm. to it, but it also has the volunteerism and the support of the community, which I think is quite unique to this prize. Yeah, I think so. I think that's a really lovely idea. And it, it's, um, it, yeah, it recognizes the community contribution as well. And you could, you can nominate people on for all of those things or one or the other depending so it's it's really yeah it gives us an awful lot of scope uh which is fantastic and i think it just recognizes that it's it's not just about the you know the product of the book or the event or whatever it might be it's it's about all of the effort that goes into that yeah and the community building so on the writing side of things, you've been writing poetry and fiction and you're so involved in the community, but I'm curious how your journey as a writer started. Yes, um, I always wanted to write. I isn't, even as a child, I would write in little notebooks and make up, make little notebooks, fold up as paper and make notebooks and, and write secret things in them <laughs> I'm sure were very deep and meaningful um but I never really imagined that I could be a writer I know a lot of writers have this and a lot of us have imposter syndrome and so on and of course I'm from England from the UK where the the, the class system is very alive and kicking um and there's a lot of judgment a, a lot of it unspoken so I had this sort of strange situation where my parents were incredibly encouraging I was one of five children of us to be involved in the arts which was lovely because I know a lot of parents put pressure on their children to be doctors and lawyers and all those things but um we had a lot of pressure as it were to to create but I and my sisters certainly did that and I was always kind of wondering well what what would I do? And it just didn't really occur to me anyway, but I've always had this love of reading and writing. And at first I thought I might be able to be a journalist and I could earn my living um, writing. And I didn't really come out of the closet as a creative writer for quite a long time. I was writing kind of not really telling anybody very much at all, my partner, and uh, that would be about it, I should think. And then eventually I did a, a master's, the equivalent of a master's, it's an MLIT because it was in Scotland. I would have been probably getting, yeah, around 30 or so. 
Um, and that kind of helped me to start recognize myself as a writer. But even then, I it was it was hard, yeah. But it kind of my tutor was really supportive, and I began to think, oh, maybe you know, I can I can do this. So yeah, it's been a long. And meanwhile, I was I did train in journalism, and I did um, or am am having a career in communications as well. So I've had quite a lot published on that side of things. Um, but it's different when it's your poem or your story being published yeah you're a lot more vulnerable it's not just about how to write a good story or you know write a good news article or get your punctuation right you're kind of sharing something more personal even if it's not autobiographical so a long and winding road yes my I didn't get my first book published till I was in my mid-40s and I had a, a lot of rejections over those previous decades so I just want to say that for anyone out there who's like me who's you know it's not just a you send off your manuscript and hey presto it gets accepted so do just just I encourage everyone to keep going and to send things out like send out poems and stories and and build up from there because you write poems and novels and short fiction do you do you always have a sense of the the container that you that piece needs to have or does it kind of decide for you I think yeah I I, I do think about that I generally yes because poetry seems to come from a slightly different place. It's much more personal and emotional for me, even though the poems themselves I write aren't autobiographical, they do connect back to something in me that's that's quite deep. So I can kind of, if I just sort of write some notes, I can sort of sense that that's a poem. And then, but with a, a story, it, it's more likely to be a situation or a story that I feel I want to tell or a character that I think of and I want to tell their story so it's not often that something I'm just trying to think might start as one thing and become another sometimes I've had a short story which has been a kernel of a novel I've tried to write that kind of thing yeah it's more likely in to sort of stay within the fiction realm but also I do have a some poems actually that will deal with similar issues that are also things that I'm working on fiction about. Yeah. So there's a lot of, yeah, overlap or a connection between the two in terms of themes and so on. Yeah. You mentioned that you're um, very interested in, in place and, and I know you live in Whitehorse now and, and lived in the UK, as you mentioned, I'm wondering how, where you grew up impacts how you write about place and setting. I think it, I think it, does I know for me it really does we moved a lot um around the south of England I think I lived in 10 different places or homes by the time I was 13 and I loved moving um but there was one place in particular in Devon we lived on on Dartmoor National Park and I was really really struggling when we moved away from there especially because we were moving into a, a city basically so I found that really hard to move from that landscape that I really connected with um, to a, a kind of urban scape instead. So, yeah, I think um, that st- has stayed with me very much. Yeah, and I'm always, I almost have this ridiculous idea that if you stay in the same place all the time forever, you're not really progressing, whatever that means. I think I kind of had that. Um, so I think I explore that a bit as well in in my writing. Yeah. Yeah. 
It seems like you really have an eye to, and maybe this is what you were just talking about, about moving from kind of the country landscape to the city, but it seems like you have a real eye for um, the land and for nature in your work. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that relationship. Yeah, I, I, I do find that really interesting because I'm, I love being in the landscape and outdoors and I live here in Whitehorse. I'm in my house right now and in the front of the house is an ordinary street looks like a suburban street but behind me I open my back gate and it's just forest and forest and forest and there's a highway and then it's just forest until the trees peter out and you know the arctic circle kind of thing so I I'm, I'm almost feel like this location is is a kind of a metaphor for me as well because I do love the outdoors when I'm not really a practical person and I love my chai lattes and my, you know, bookshops and theater and all those things. So I kind of am not really the typical Yukoner who knows how to live off the land and survive and all those things. So I do think about that, yeah, that quite a lot and, and have some fun with that in my writing as well. And I try, my husband is a biologist and I really admire his ability to focus yeah to to focus on a species or even to see oh look there's a bird or uh, you know whereas I'll just kind of be in my, inside my head and not really seeing things so I'm I always try to work on that um when I'm out to really pay attention and learn learn the, you know the difference between a white spruce and a black spruce which I would still struggle with um and what you know what species are flying low and what species are flying high and all those sorts of things so yeah I think that's a lifelong um yeah a lifelong I'm trying to think of the right word it's a not it's a challenge but it's a joy yeah as well just to just to kind of keep returning and paying attention yeah yeah I I wish we had time to talk about all all of your books uh but I thought maybe we'd spend a little bit of time with endlings and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how that collection started of course yeah so endlings is the is my latest book came out 2020 March 2020 that fateful time um, and it's all about extinct species so I had the idea I was actually at Sage Hill writing experience which is a wonderful place I recommend to go if you're looking to meet other writers and learn from uh, mentors um, I was actually working on a different um, poetry collection and I and I feel like it's that because you're in such a wonderful environment I just suddenly had this idea to write a collection just about extinct species and I've always cared about animals very deeply and yeah so it, it seemed very like a, the perfect thing to, to help me kind of deal with how I felt about all the species who are going extinct um, and extinction of what is a really interesting subject if interesting is a kind of an understatement but extinction is natural so 99% I think of all species that have ever been on this planet have become extinct and that's the course of things but what the problem now is that we're living in a mass another the sixth mass extinction because again mass extinction events are also part it seems of this planet's life as in the you know the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs for example or there have been you know other mass extinctions to do with climate change not human introduced so but the problem now with the sixth mass extinction that we're living through is that it is human caused so and we have sort of speeded up the process of extinction quite horrendously something like up to ten thousand times 
faster, I think that's a World Wildlife Fund reference, than would it would be the case if humans weren't here. So I wanted just to focus on particular species rather than writing about the extinction theme more broadly. I wanted to pick species and just find a way to connect with those animals in particular uh, to kind of elegize them and honor them and just try and imagine their existence. And I ended up writing about half the book is about animals who humans did, you know, we are the reason they've become extinct. But I, I found myself drawn to species who existed before we did too. So I, and I kind of quite like that balance because I didn't really want the book just to be a diatribe against humans or just, or just about humans. You know, I wanted to think about species who were here before we were. So that was how it ended up. But of course, every time I had a plan, I would break the, my own rules because, you know, that's just how a lot of us are. And then I looked to see what I had, you know, when I'd written quite a few poems. So it really wasn't very strategic. And then I had a wonderful editor, Alice Major, um, who helped me organize them all. And she she looked at the voice and you know, the voices and the the way I had sort of told the poem, whether I was writing it from the as if I was the animal or was I writing the story of the very last uh, specimen of that species, that kind of thing. So she she did a wonderful job of helping me organize it. Yeah. The first thing that caught my eye about the book was the acknowledgments. <laughs> And I wondered, are those are those animals and pets that you've known? Yeah, the list at the beginning. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they are. Yes, they're, they're, they're my list of animals I have lived with. Yeah. Yeah. As an adult or a child. Uh, yeah. So I had a I had a difficult time when my dog died. Um, nutmeg. And it's even hard actually talking about it. It's, that was in 2015. And um I kind of I kind of wanted to dedicate a book to her but then when it came to it I felt I needed to acknowledge all the other animals I had lived with as well so it's mostly to her and then it's to all the others but I've I've realized since this was published with great horror that I missed out um I missed out two hamsters <laughs> and so their names were Hamlet and Bellstaff and I'm just mentioning that you know to try and rectify my guilt um, for missing them out <laughs> yeah so yeah that was that was what that was all about this long list at the beginning yeah, yeah. the other thing that I I was really I don't I moved by but like I'm always interested by how what kind of bookends these collections and the book is organized in five sections but then there's the two poems at the beginning and end that kind of stand on their own mm. and I I mean, the one at the end was, I was, I was kind of, I was quite moved by the fact that so much of this happens without us ever batting an eye. We don't, we, so many animals and creatures go extinct and we won't even know their names. And I thought that was, I mean, very real, but also on a sense, quite heartbreaking. So I wondered if you could talk about that decision to have those pieces at the beginning and the end and to have them stand on their own outside of the sections yeah this was the this was the help of the editor Alice Major who I talked about so we were we were thinking because yeah I know this is a it's a difficult collection yeah it's it's every poem is about a species who's who's no longer with us um and there are a few handful of poems which are about the extinction theme more broadly more tangentially and I did have a poem called um it's time to talk of hope 
which I hope is a little more hopeful. And we talked about ending on that poem, but then it seems a little, I don't know, it almost seemed a little not trite. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, or a little neat, maybe, neat and tidy for something that is not neat and tidy. So um, Alice Major suggested pulling out this other poem and kind of putting it as, like you say, a bookend um, called It Won't Hurt, which is a more general poem about the experience of, yeah, letting these animals go, as it were, these unnamed animals. So I just, I just thought it was such a lovely idea, and I really did appreciate her insights. So I can't really take any credit for that. Yeah, because I was thinking, oh, should I organize the poems chronologically, like when they existed? Or by, you know, some kind of, uh, oh dear, I've forgotten the tax and taxonomy, you know, like, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to think of the right words. And, and none of that felt, it felt a bit too uh, clinical, I suppose to do that so I love I love the idea of that yeah and put, yeah pulling it out by voice and then bookending those two poems and the one at the beginning is about the Javan tiger which I I hope is is a little more it's kind of a it's another sad poem but I hope that it's it's called beauty and again it, it felt like that was kind of acknowledging how species contribute almost culturally to us as well it's not just about the biology and the, the loss from a ecological point of view. Was there a, was there a poem or, or maybe an animal or a piece of the collection that really surprised you as you were working on it? Um, I think I learned so much writing these poems. And I, yeah, I mean, almost everyone, because I suppose in... I looked at a. I went to a lot of natural history museums. Um, I was very lucky and very grateful. I managed to do that before the pandemic, and I took notes and did little sketches and things. And then I looked, you know, I read books and I looked online. There's many websites about um, extinction, of course, and videos. There's some amazing videos of some species who went extinct more recently. Um, very heartbreaking videos. So I suppose for there to be a poem, I, I've found something that surprised me or connected with me emotionally in some way or I felt like it was a story I could imagine telling because to write a poem about a species is not you know it, it took a little bit of thought each time I mean some poems came quickly but some took a lot longer so in a way a, the, the word surprise is a really good one because I think surprise is what is really important in poetry if you can somehow include surprise for the reader and ideally of course for the person who's writing it you know and can they find that surprise and then somehow convey it to the reader as well um but some some species like the stella's sea cow i i really connected with and this was a huge beast of a of a creature who lived in the bering sea and by the time western humans had encountered them um they were wiped out i think within three decades um of us of us when i say us i mean the white settler us coming across them and then you know destroying them basically so quickly whereas of course you know indigenous people would have been aware of them and had encounters with them before that um but it was the, the europeans who kind of wiped them out so that and i and i'm 
went to a naturalist museum in New York and they had a Stella sea cow skeleton hanging from the ceiling and it was a very emotional experience to to kind of meet meet the bones yeah yeah has your relationship with the collection changed over time like it, it came out at a at a time when the whole world changed mm-hmm. and and it feels like it's just continuing you know that was one change but we're now watching the as we were talking about the weather before yes. we started it yes. seems like we're watching climate change happen in just such a very different way or such a more present way for so many people and i wondered how if you if your emotions about the collection have changed as as the year or so has passed from it being published I think um, I felt very sad when I finished it and I still want to keep writing about animals. So that's kind of not surprising because I've written about animals quite a lot in my poetry. Um, But I I have been slowly working towards writing fiction more about animals too. So that's that's kind of something. So... um, yeah, it is a it is an interesting relationship with this book because I had all these plans, like we all did, you know, to do all, to go to all these events, and I was really going to connect with. I was going to go to a few animal studies conferences, and that to me was really exciting because that's like a new world for me as a non academic. Um, but I'm so obviously that didn't happen. But I have managed to keep some of those connections that would have happened in person and and develop those online, which has been very exciting and unexpected so and I'm always interested in because with a small press a a book tends to have a very short shelf life you know a few months but I'm really grateful that this one has perhaps had a slightly longer shelf life somehow because I suppose of the pandemic or the theme I'm not sure but sometimes I, I pick it up and I just think I don't this is sad you know I don't know if I'm I'm really you know, like picking poems to read sometimes. Um, like today, I I thought I would read a, a poem that was perhaps a little more about the, the joy um, rather than the the pain and the, the sadness. Yeah. Yeah. I know you've been busy doing uh, communications around the pandemic, but are you working on any creative projects right now? I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying to make progress on a novel um, that I started many years ago and, and, you know, have worked on off and on. So I'm I'm really trying, but it's terribly slow. um, But I'm trying to not give myself a hard time about that because novels are big and you need more than five minutes in an evening to kind of dip back into it. Yeah. So I'm I'm kind of I work on the occasional poem as well, which kind of helps me going, even though it's sort of a distraction from the novel. Thanks to Joanna Lilly for being on the podcast. Joanna is the author of Endlings, Worry Stones, If There Were Roads, The Birthday Books, and The Fleece Era. If you want to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also, of course, find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we share news about the winners and finalists, as well as information about upcoming events. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with the Honorable Angelique Bernard, the Commissioner of the Yukon. 
The commissioner and I talked about the books she loved as a kid, how the Borealis Prize came to be, and much more. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.